Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Today, we have Marion Tupi, the author of Superabundance, his new, new book, as well as this phenomenal book called 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know. Mr. Tupi, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much for the invite. Delighted to be with you. Which metric can we use to determine if the world is getting wealthier or more impoverished? Well, um, you can use uh, a lot of them. I mean, the most basic one that people use is uh, GDP per capita. Um, uh, you can even see a life expectancy as a, as a measure uh, of the overall wealth of the world. But the, the one new, newish kind of way that we have uh, developed in a new book, Superabundance, is called the time price. Uh, what we are looking at, um, we have developed an entire methodology around the concept of measuring standard of living in terms of how much time you spend in order to buy a good or a service. Now, there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, one is that, um, um, you know, a lot of people out there do not trust government statistics when it comes to inflation. So uh, if you are comparing a loaf of bread today with a loaf of bread from 10 or 20 years ago, obviously you cannot compare nominal prices, right? Yes. Um, uh, nominal prices, uh, that, that, that's a problem, um, especially in the media. The media will often say, oh, things are at, um, at, uh, at, at record prices. Bread or gas or milk have never been so expensive in the history of this country. And they are doing a huge disservice to Americans because obviously uh, they are not accounting for inflation. Um, you, in, in order to get a real sense of the price, you need to take the nominal price and deduct inflation from it. And Americans are, uh, to, to, to some extent, uh, familiar with, with inflation, especially now that inflation has, has made a comeback. And so what's necessary, if you're looking at standards of living between two points in time, you have to account for inflation. And that's when you get the real price uh, or inflation adjusted price. Now, the problem with both nominal and real prices is that they don't adjust for increased wages. Uh, under normal circumstances, uh, wages increase at a faster pace than inflation because people are becoming more productive. And so what is what, what is important when you are measuring standard of living is to um, is to say what is happening to a cost of good or a service relative to the amount of money in your wallet. And that's where prices come in, uh, time prices come in. Time price is very easy to calculate. You just look at a good, the price of a good in a store, and you compare it to your hourly earnings, and you get a time price. Nominal price divided by hourly wage gives you how many minutes of work you have to spend in order to earn something. And if that amount of time decreases over time, then you are getting better off. So give me a couple examples that you use. Say uh, I'm comparing, say, my I guess this would be my great grandfather 100 years ago. Uh, items that I would buy in 1922 versus 2022 or, you know, well, uh, I don't uh, know the specifics uh, that you use in yeah, the book. Bo book will uh, be out soon, by the way. Links in the uh, d description below. Um, so what is an item that I can get today that years ago it would have taken me more time to acquire? Um, I was actually doing a, an interesting calculation for a presentation I'll be giving um, a little bit um, uh, later in the year. 
Uh, I'm not going to go through the 100 years, although in the book we do actually look at uh, standards of living over a period of 100 years. We look at food prices over a period of 100 years. Um, and uh, even 150, uh, sorry, 170 years. We go back all the way to 1850 to calculate how much a pound of beef cost in terms of minutes, um, chicken or something like that. But let me give you an example that I recently calculated. So 1980, uh, many listeners will remember 1980, the end of the Carter administration, beginning of the Reagan administration. And a loaf of bread cost 50 cents, right? 50 cents in 1980. Um, in 2022, uh, the same loaf of bread, this is statistics coming from, from BLS, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the same loaf of bread costs uh, $1.56, okay? So 1980, 50 cents, 2022, $1.56. So those are nominal prices. And based on those prices, bread has become 212% more expensive, right? But you have a sophisticated audience that understands that that's a meaningless statistic because it's not adjusted for inflation. So once you adjust for inflation, what you see that the price of bread actually got 14% less expensive. And that's because 50 cents in 1980 amounts to $1.81 in 2022. And so if the price of bread in 2022 is uh, $1.56, um, but the inflation adjusted price is $1.81, then you know that price has become cheaper, right? You're with me so far. Okay. Yes. So now we have tackled the nominal price and we have tackled the real price. Now let's look at the time price. Again, in 1980, bread costs 50 cents. And the hourly wage at that time, this is the manufacturing wage, the ordinary blue collar worker was $6.50 an hour. Once again, 1980, 50 cents, and the, uh, the, 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 nominal, uh, the nominal wage was $6.57. And that means that the blue-collar worker in 1980 had to work four minutes in order to buy a loaf of bread. All you do is you divide the, the 50 cents by the hourly wage, which is $6.57, and you get four minutes. In 2022, bread costs us uh, $1.56, but the hourly wage has increased to almost $27. And so once you do that calculation again, dividing the $1.56 divided by $27, you get three minutes of labor. So what we can say based on using time prices as the loaf of bread in time prices has declined from three minutes, sorry, from four minutes to three minutes. You are saving a minute of work. Um, you can do similar calculations for all sorts of things, including gas and housing uh, services even and all of these minutes sort of accumulate to give you a picture of what our standards of living are today and the idea is that the less time you have to work in order to buy something the more time you have to spend on other things that you maybe couldn't have done in 1980 maybe you can take an extra holiday maybe you can read a book or maybe you can do nothing at all just relaxing um, so the whole point of civilization, of capitalism, is to produce a world where we work as little as possible for the things that we desire. And time prices are a very good way of doing that. And so the whole book that we published, um, which is coming out on the 31st of August, is based on time prices. We ignore inflation. Uh, we ignore, um, you know, um, inflation adjustments and things like that. We just take a nominal price divided by nominal wage 
and nominal price divided by nominal wage at two different points in time. And um, the, the, the results we get, um, especially for Americans between 1850 and, uh, you know, um, 2018 is actually quite dramatic, a huge increase in standards of living. And notice, uh, whenever the press is reporting on this stuff, they also never take into account the uh, quality increase in things like cars mm. or phones or iPads or computers or microphones or air conditioning units. They always just say, X used to cost this then, and now it costs this now. So they not only don't adjust for inflation, they don't adjust for uh, wage increases. They don't distinguish quality between like decades where tons of innovation has, uh, has uh, taken place. And, and, comes, and, and, and I have to say, we don't do it either. And we don't do it because it's extremely difficult. Um, how do you even compare uh, iPhone 1 from iPhone, whatever we have now, 13 or 14 or 15 or 16? I can't remember. So we don't do that. What we do instead, we look at exactly the same uh, amount of a, um, of a product that doesn't change over time. So, for example, we take, um, uh, you know, one pound of chicken or one pound of beef or one pound of copper or one pound of, uh, uh, you know, rubber. Um, and and then, then we look at the time prices. So we always compare like with like so as not to be so as not to be accused of cherry picking our data. When it comes to how such innovation has happened. Uh, how would you account for uh, w what reasons are behind this uh, increase in wealth that uh, the world is experiencing? I think that, that there's a general consensus amongst economists that, that, that growth comes from ideas, new ideas, that we are essentially an ideas or innovation. Ideas are just a synonym for innovation. Innovation is just a synonym for productivity, and productivity is just a synonym for standards of living. So they 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 all sort of together. Um, uh, they, 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 maybe, maybe synonym is the wrong word, but but they are all sort of aiming at, at, at the same thing. And 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 the way I think about it is this: first of all, you need people. Nobody else is capable of producing ideas but people. Uh, maybe one day we'll have artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence will start producing its own novel and useful ideas, but we are not there yet and we may never get there. So for the time being, the, throughout the history of the world, the, the, the only entity capable of producing is new ideas are people. So what you need, first of all, is people. You need the, the more people you have, the more likely you are going to come up with somebody who is going to have a good idea. Uh, that idea is going to lead to an invention. So, so ideas lead to inventions. Inven inventions then get tested in the marketplace to separate bad ideas from good ideas and to improve on, um, on, on inventions. And you end up in the process, and, and the market is really a synonym for, for, the, for the process of innovation. So if you look at, for example, the Wright Brothers um, airplane, uh, I think it was 1909, uh, maybe, uh, maybe I've got a couple of years off, but uh, the Wright brothers produced the first airplane. Um, um, and, and it looks very different from the Dreamliner, right? Uh, but they had this idea, they innovated something, and then in the marketplace over the decades, it got improved until a place, un until a place when you get the, um, uh, the Dreamliner or the new Boom airplane, a supersonic airplane uh, that is coming online 
And uh, that then contributes to improving standards of living, uh, that you can now fly with your beloved to a, uh, to a tropical island for a, uh, uh, for a honeymoon um, or, or, and, and so forth. So, um, so the process is, it starts with people who have ideas. Ideas lead to inventions. Uh, those get innovated into, into useful products, which then improve our standards of living. And once again, um, it is simply more likely that you are going to come up with a with with a intelligent or perhaps just um, perhaps just a curious person in a population of ten billion people than uh, than than a population of hundred thousand people or 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 a million people. And so we think that uh, modernity, standards, high standards of living, high rates of economic growth. Uh, and, and the bountiful world that we enjoy today are deeply connected to the increase in population. Um, you know, between year one and 1600s, the world population was constantly moving uh, between 300, 400, 500 million people. It never really changed. Sometimes you had 400 then went down, but the whole population of the world was like three or 400 million people. And it, it was only in 1800 that we reached the first billion. And uh, it is also at this time that the hockey stick that Deidre McCloskey talks about suddenly starts going upwards. So, you know, you, you have this flat shaft of, of GDP per capita remaining around the world at $2 per, per day per person uh, for, for millennia. Um, and then in the last 200 years, we have this huge takeoff. And uh, population has something to do with that um, because population produces ideas. Now, I should also mention that it is not enough to have a lot of people. Freedom also plays a role. I mean, after all, China has been uh, the most populous country in the world for a very, very long time. Um, but they were desperately poor until, until recently. So, so you need more people, but the, those people also need to be free to talk, to publish, to exchange ideas without the fear of punishment, uh, they must be allowed to, to participate in trade, they must be allowed to profit. Uh, otherwise, um, you know, having not enough people, having, having, having a lot of people will not necessarily lead to growth. People need to be to have a, a modicum of freedom at the very least. Of course, yeah. Since uh, the market reforms in uh, the, the late 70s with China or the early 90s in India, we see drastic improvements in the uh, g general standard of living in uh, in those countries. So I'm glad you mentioned that. You mentioned uh, people need to profit. This is the word that we so often are uh, smeared with, saying that profit is the unique aspect of free markets and capitalism. And this is actually a parasitic uh, way of engaging in uh, human interactions when people are constantly looking to sort of get one over on the other person. They're seeing uh, other people not as ends in and of themselves, but as uh, people to be sort of uh, stomped on. And it leads to this dog eat dog sort of uh, mentality in a society. When it comes to profit, why is profit important? And is it possible to have a world without profit and uh, still have an increase in uh, well-being? Well, I don't know all the philosophical arguments that a libertarian scholar could offer. What I can tell you is, of course, that I grew up under socialism. I spent the first 13 years of my life living in a socialist a Czechoslovak socialist republic, and we didn't have profit, and we didn't have high economic growth, and actually the country stagnated. 
and uh, um, and and everything we had was either we didn't have it um, because uh, you know our shops were empty and yours were full, or alternatively, whatever we had was substandard. Um, when people weren't allowed to profit, they didn't produce a beautiful BMW or uh, or a Mercedes. They produced ugly Škodas and Trabants and things like that. Uh, when people were not allowed to work for themselves in the fields, uh, they haven't produced uh, large quantities of nice, uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, they produced barely anything at all. In fact, a perfect uh, historical example would be when the Soviet Union under Stalin nationalized its agriculture. Uh, agricultural productivity um, uh, collapsed. Um, I mean, at, at, at first it was maintained through very brutal me methods, but ultimately the Soviet Union couldn't feed itself. It was reliant on American corn uh, and wheat um, because, because once you remove the profit motive, people don't have much of an incentive to, 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 to work hard. People want to be rewarded uh, for their hard work, and uh, I, I don't see anything, anything wrong with that. Um, I mean, there is a famous quote from from Adam Smith that it is not out of the benevolence of the butcher that you get your daily uh, meat or a baker to get your daily bread. It is from his uh, consideration for his self-interest. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't understand why people around the world, and I know there are a lot of them, deplore profit so much. Uh, they usually deplore it in other people, but not in themselves, you know. Um, it's always the other guy who is trying to make a profit. But me, by asking constantly for higher wages, oh, that's not profit at all. Uh, that's just me being sensible and evaluating uh, my, my, my contribution to the economy uh, perfectly objectively, right? The, the other thing is that within the free market system, unless it has been captured by, uh, by monopolists, uh, politicians, crooks, liars and cheats, you can only make profit by providing your fellow human beings with things that those human beings want. Um, now, sometimes we don't even know that we want something. When Steve Jobs came up with iPhone, uh, nobody in the world thought we needed an iPhone, but now everybody wants it. Um, you know, especially, um, I mean, we already have it in the United States, but if you go to poor countries, it is the ultimate status symbol. The fact that you have a iPhone rather than some other smartphone or a flip phone or whatever else. So um, capitalists in a free market system um, tend to produce things that people want and they get rewarded for it. And, and it's, it's not through, um, through some sort of shenanigans. And that kept, needs to be kept in mind as well. Excellent uh, explanation of that. I, I still have yet to understand why wanting uh, money voluntarily is evil and greedy, but the state taking trillions of dollars a year by force, threatening to jail everyone uh, who doesn't chip in. Well, that's not greedy at all. That's just a public service, really. I'm still trying to wrap my mind, my mind around it. Bernie Sanders, if you could come on the show and explain it to me, I would uh, really appreciate it. One of my uh, favorite parts of uh, the, uh, bu the book that uh, I was able to get a uh, hold of is you have this analogy where you increase the number of people that attend a wedding from your parents' wedding to your wedding. And it turns out that in this hypothetical scenario, the wedding becomes cheaper the more people that uh, you invite. You compare this to commodity prices. What does any of this have to do 
with anything. Uh, a wedding and the cost and commodities aren't uh, commodities just getting uh, more expensive because we're using the scarce commodities of the world. Uh, please explain that analogy for us. Yeah, so that's really at the heart of the book is to the, the heart of the book is devoted to the idea that the more people you have, the scarcer commodities become, the more expensive they become. Um, obviously, the best way to evaluate whether you have more or less commodity is by looking at the price. Yes, we could look at quantities. That's what uh, physicists do or biologists. They look at quantities of things. Um, but that's a very deeply imperfect way of measuring how much commodities we have. So we've been using oil, um, you know, uh, crude oil uh, for thousands of different things for over a century. And today we have more reserves of crude oil than we had a hundred years ago. How is that possible? Well, you know, our methods of surveying have changed. Our technology has improved. So the deposits of crude oil, which we could never have reached a hundred years ago, are now easily reachable. We are also able to explore more of the world and, and look for um, look for oil in other places. So Ghana recently has come online as a major producer of oil. Angola has been a producer of oil for a long time, which certainly wasn't the case when it was just the United States under the, with the Rockefellers producing oil. Um, so, so, so some people measure quantities and that has not led to having a a real proper picture of the world. In fact, quite the opposite. It had freaked out generations of people who thought we were going to run out of things. So what do we do instead? We are looking at prices of things, uh, specifically time prices of commodities, um, because price is the, it, it's not a, it may not be the perfect indicator of how much we have in terms of resources, but it is the best indicator we have because it reflects decisions made by 8 billion people around the world. Every time you buy a cup of coffee, you increase the price of the coffee bean incrementally. Um, but if everybody stopped drinking coffee today, uh, then the price of the coffee bean would become zero because it would, it would be a useless product. Nobody would, nobody would want it. So, so not only is the price a perfect example of um, of the best knowledge that 8 billion people can produce, but also of their expectations into the future, right? So what, what does that have to do with the wedding? <laughs> Let me try to get to that. Um, what we try to do is to update the famous wager between Paul Ehrlich and uh, Julian Simon, um, who bet in uh, 1980 on whether the prices of commodities were going to go up or down. Julian Simon, who was, a, uh, uh, who was an economist from Maryland University, won the bet because prices of commodities went down. And Paul Ehrlich, who is still alive, uh, he's the biologist at uh, Stanford University, lost the bet because he thought prices of commodities were going to go up between 1980 and 1990. Simon was saying they were going to go down, and in fact, they went down. And so what we did uh, with that specific, specific example was to, to bring that wager 
up in time or forward in time. So we measured the cost of commodities between 1980 and 2018. And what we found was that the population of the world increased by 75%, but the prices of commodities decreased by 85%. Uh, sorry, uh, 75%. So, so the, 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 the population of the world increased by 73 or 75% and the prices of commodities decreased by about 75%. In fact, um, for every 1% increase in uh, population, we have seen a 1% decrease in time price of commodities. In the book, that's just one of the data sets that we look at. In fact, we have 18 data sets. Um, and uh, on average, every 1% increase in global population decreases uh, the time price of commodities, goods and services by about 1%. So that also tells us that on average, human beings contribute more than they consume. And that goes back to our discussion about innovation, right? On average, um, um, prices decrease at a faster pace than humanity increases in number because human beings bring into the world not just an empty stomach, but also a brain. And some of, the, some of those brains, not all of them, but some of those brains are incredibly beneficial to the, to, to the humankind. They come up with new ways of doing things. Let me give you just one example, and that would be the example of Norman Burlog, uh, the, the father of the Green Revolution, who decided to... Uh, through, through interbreeding to produce a new type of uh, wheat and rice and corn um, that, uh, that where the storks were smaller, uh, thereby using less energy for, for growth, but, but the, 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 the useful part of the plant um, um, became much bigger. And so uh, through genetic engineering, um, we, we, we are now living in a world where India is a food exporter as opposed to uh, importers suffering from periodic bouts of, of famine. And that happened because of one person, Norman Borlaug. So is that another uh, reason that free markets are so important? Because you have so many people, you don't know what ideas are going to succeed. So you not just want to allow for the greatest amount of freedom, you want to allow for the greatest amount of contracts or private property, in this case, another word that's terribly vilified. Um, by allowing for more private property, you're able to reap more benefits from the ideas that only one in a billion people could come up with. I don't know. I know Henry Ford didn't invent the car, but he made it a lot cheaper. And a lot of people were working on like some aviation, but the Wright brothers were able to nail, uh, nail it down. Is that why things like private property are, and contracts are so vitally important? Or would those, th would those things exist under maybe socialism or uh, statism as well, you think? Well, they, they have to be important because countries without them stagnate um, and, and countries with them uh, prosper. I think that you'd be very, it would be very difficult to find an economist who believes that private property is not important um, or that um, equality before the law is not important that uh, ignoring contracts uh, will lead to economic prosperity. I, I can't imagine any uh, mainstream economists arguing for things like that. The free market is, imp I, I think what you mean by free market, you, you're, you're thinking about the whole panoply of things that form a sophisticated um, 
free uh, capitalist economy. The, the, the market itself is obviously very important for a number of reasons. Uh, by market, I mean trading uh, is important for a number of reasons. One of them is that it is the best way of indicating what do we need more of and what do we need less of. If the price of something is increasing, then that tells that the market tells the world we need more oil or natural gas uh, as we currently do. If the prices are collapsing, uh, like Betamax, <laughs> then you know that we don't need uh, to produce more um, video Betamax players because people are no longer interested. They have switched to something else. Uh, when cassette tapes collapsed in price, that was a good indicator that, uh, that CDs uh, have, uh, have, uh, have triumphed. So, so the market is the source of best, um, most reliable um, uh, price uh, uh, price system, but also uh, it, it is the way of it is the way of distinguishing useless ideas from useful ideas. So, um, not not all of us innovate. Very small percentage of people innovate. Uh, sorry, not all of us invent very small percentage of people invent and also very small percentage of people innovate. But just because people invent and innovate doesn't mean that their inventions and innovations are a good idea. And the marketplace is also a place where bad ideas get weeded out from good ideas. The, the, the valuable ideas are going to triumph and the ideas that uh, inventions, innovations, whatever you want to call them, which are not particularly useful are going to um, are going to be crushed by the market. Um, you know, um, Diet Coke is a big market success. Uh, New Coke, which came out in the early 1980s, was a huge failure. But it was the market that decided um, whether the Coca-Cola company should continue to produce one product or another. And when you're talking about the market, it, it sort of seems uh, to, to some people... Uh, as far as I get uh, when it comes to criticisms, that the market, we're sort of like talking about this imaginary magical thing as opposed to living in the real world. When I think of talking about the market, all I mean is people interacting voluntarily versus uh, the counter uh, example of how they would act politically. So whereas there's an incentive in the market for people to uh, purchase products to put the mon their money where their mouth is and actually show what they value as opposed to the virtue signaling that goes on in the political realm that uh, fallible people where there are bad actors and mostly good people we would much prefer a market economy because of that price signal as opposed to a political economy where uh, well there's elites in both at least the elites in a market economy have a much bigger incentive to serve the masses because of this price signal as opposed to uh, the political approach to things uh, do you see any correlation between um, items or industries that have a lot of political influence and those prices versus much less regulated industries and whether those prices fall faster Mm, certainly. Um, so first of all, let me just, I agree with everything you say. I, I, I will simply add that market is both a real and a metaphorical place. Market relates to both the, the, the main square in a village in Slovakia or Poland 
where farmers come in with carrots and cucumbers and onions and uh, and 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 uh, potatoes, what have you, and it is in that market um, that real transactions take place. And indeed, for the longest time in human history, when we didn't have global marketplace connected via fiber optic cables. Um, what we had was town markets. The main square, a few times a week, maybe two or three times a week, would turn into a market where people would come and sell. And then when the global economy, or at least European economy, became a little more sophisticated, there would be special areas in Europe where people from all over Europe would go to a mega market. Uh, Champagne, for example, in uh, the 1200s was a perfect example um, where uh, people from all over Europe went because it was sort of like a, um, um, uh, it, 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 was, it, was, it was the one place in Europe where you knew that everybody who had anything to sell would go and, and buy and sell. So, so there were then the, those were the specific geographical destinations where people would go maybe once a year or twice a year. Um, today, marketplace is global. It doesn't necessarily have to be physical. Uh, it can be me clicking on, uh, on, on, on the Amazon website to buy an advanced copy of Superabundance, <laughs> which will be delivered um, after, after, after um, uh, August 31st. But you ask a very important question. Can we empirically say that industries where government is more involved are becoming more expensive or less cheap um, uh, or, or maybe they are becoming cheaper at a lesser pace than industries where government is not involved. And here I would very much urge your listeners and your viewers to Google Mark Perry, P-E-R-R-Y, Mark Perry, and it's called the the greatest graph in the world, or maybe it's called the best or the greatest chart in the world. All right. So here is that chart. Looking at this chart, the greatest chart in the world, what can we learn from it? Okay. So the first thing, uh, and, and, and this is actually, I will start with a shortcoming of the, uh, of the chart. Uh, the, the, hourly, the, the average hourly wages, that, that, that should be in green or something like that, because that is the relevant... That is the relevant um, line um, from the perspective of time prices. Basically, whatever you see below the um, the hourly, the average hourly wages uh, is becoming cheaper. That doesn't mean that it is not increasing in price, but it is becoming cheaper because it is growing in price at a slower pace than average hourly earnings. So you can see that housing, food and beverages, cars. Um, household furnishings, uh, clothing, cell phones, uh, toys, computer software, TVs are becoming much, much less expensive relative to wages. In fact, they are, they are actually uh, becoming cheaper in real terms because the overall inflation was 56%. I think you are looking now at the chart between, 19, uh, between 1998 and 2018. Yes, that's what you're looking at. And basically... What Mark does here, he, 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 puts, he puts the black line through it, and that's the inflation. And what you can see is that average hourly earnings 
um, have grown at a faster pace than inflation. You would expect that because we are becoming more productive. But when you look at childcare, medical care, college tuition, college textbook, hospital services, what you realize that they become massively more expensive. What do they have all in common? What they have all in common is that the, that the government is very heavily in, involved in their production and also in subsidizing um, uh, of them. So, for example, college textbooks on college tuition. There is a reason why it's increasing, and that is because the government is pumping ever more money into the tertiary education system uh, through subsidies. So if a kid doesn't have enough money, uh, he can also uh, borrow from he can always borrow from the government. Uh, to pay back later, and he, he, he's suddenly sitting a quarter of a million dollars, and the university knows it, so they can jack up the prices because they know they are going to get it. Hospital services, once again, uh, this is something that the government has declared is basically universal human rights, so a lot of money is being, uh, being pushed into the healthcare sector in government subsidies and government regulations. Um, uh, Currently, roughly nine out of every ten dollars uh, that that is being spent in uh, in 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 the healthcare sector is being spent by the government or by 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 uh, private providers, but not by by the people themselves. So obviously, when there is a lot of money sloshing around in a variety of subsidies and loans and and so forth, uh, the prices are going to go up. Childcare very similar to that. Uh, that is partly driven by uh, regulation. For example, in Washington, D.C., just last week, it was decided that uh, anybody taking care of children has to have a college degree. Um, now, obviously, that's completely idiotic. There is no reason for that at all. Plenty of Americans have survived with Latin American nannies for decades, maybe even centuries. But today in Washington, D.C., you need a college degree. What does that mean? That means that um, the, your, your child care is going to cost much more because you are getting a, a person who is going to be able to command more money and, um, and, uh, and to, to, uh, partly to pay off their, uh, their debts. Whereas where the market is permitted to function uh, more or less perfectly, uh, cars, uh, household furnishing, clothing, uh, TVs is a perfect example because we also import a lot of um, electronics from abroad. And those have fallen by something like 90%. So this is a very important indicator of the heavier the, 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 the government involvement in, uh, in industry, the, 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 the faster the prices rise and the less they are involved, the, 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 the cheaper things get. I don't know if you have this uh, expression in uh, the Czech Republic, but are you familiar with he who pays the piper calls the tune? Yes, yes. Uh, so yeah. it, uh, in other words, when producers uh, have you know, a customer basis, then the customers sort of get to call the tune because they're the ones paying them. If they're not accountable to the customers, well, then the customers can go somewhere else. So the producers act to try and please the consumer. But when there's government subsidies, well, then... They try to please the politicians. And now it's almost like the consumers are completely irrelevant. You get treated like total trash by uh, these producers at that point because all of their focus is how do we uh, get our uh, funds again next year? So we have the case against subsidies. And then the case you mentioned, that case pisses me off so much about needing a college degree to babysit kids or watch them in exchange for money, a blatant violation of I mean, just the self-ownership principle, but look at that. They're explicitly lowering the supply 
of child care providers, literally making it illegal unless you have some degree from some uh, Marxist university. And then they tell you that, oh, well, we have no clue why the price is so high out of nowhere. They literally limit the supply, increase the price and say, gosh, I, I guess the people just have too much freedom. I mean, it is unbelievable. It, it, that it, is a very important graph. Thank you for bringing that up. It's completely unbelievable. And uh, it's um, it has a lot of consequences, negative consequences throughout the economy. Part of the reason why people are taking, uh, you know, people are not having as many babies um, as, as they could uh, is because they are, they are looking at the price of raising a child in a, in a typical advanced economy with regulations like that and saying, well, uh, you know, we, we basically cannot afford this. Uh, the, the, the child is going to cost us $300,000 before it walks out of the door at the age of 18, uh, adjusted for, um, you know, childcare and college education and things like that. Do we really have that kind of money, uh, especially in the economy where our real earnings are becoming smaller due to inflation? But that's not that's that's a that's a that's 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 an example that could be multiplied millions of times. So here in Virginia, for example, let's say that you are a billionaire and um, your greatest desire in your life is to build a hospital uh, that you are going to provide um, people with health care. I, I realize that not very many people think that billionaires have a heart, but a lot of them do. And a lot of them want to do a lot of good. Look at the charity of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and things like that. So let's say that you've got a billionaire who wants, all he wants to do is to build a hospital. Can he do it in the state of Virginia? The answer is yes, he can, provided that this billionaire can prove to the government of Virginia that there's a need for this hospital. And who decides whether there is a need for an additional hospital? Well, it's all the other hospitals in Virginia. So it's, it's called certificate of need laws for people that aren't. It's called certificate of need because yeah. I did not believe that this was a real thing, but it actually is. And most states have them. So in America, this country that we live in, the paragon of capitalism, your competitors have to essentially sign off on your on you having the privilege of taking the risk in the marketplace, whether your hospital is going to increase, uh, make profit or not, um, you, you cannot make it up. Uh, but this is what happens when, uh, when, uh, when, 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 when you have a monopoly, when you have rent situation. Um, we, we always have to be on the lookout for it because, you know, I, I think that all societies ultimately uh, trend toward. Um, you know, some some sort of oligarchy or some sort of uh, situation where um, people will 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 get um, monopoly power uh, and rents. Um, it, it's it's in human nature. Why why compete if you don't have to and still make the same money, perhaps even more? It's in human nature. If you can if you can monopolize and capture the legislative process, you are the king. You don't have to do anything for your fellow man. And and it's not just the evil people even though that's who it tends to attract. But even good people can trick themselves into saying, I really am doing something good that I'm the only provider because uh, I make sure things are safe. And if it were other people doing it, they wouldn't be as safe as me. The human mind's ability to justify these things is so, 
it's so incredible, the rationalizations that people could have, that it's not a matter of having good certificate of need laws. It's about abolishing these things and embracing the principle of free trade, free trade and uh, self-ownership. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, how, how else did we end up, for example, with one or two providers of baby formula? Um, you yeah, know, really. uh, that was a heavily um, skewed, heavily regulated um, uh, market, um, definitely not a free market. Uh, and uh, when when one factory producing baby formula shut down, uh, suddenly we had this massive shortage. And um, what's worse, of course, that we, is that for weeks we couldn't import it from Europe. Yeah. Uh, that's another insanity is that, for example, every product which has already been approved by the European Union uh, has to be reapproved here in the United States and vice versa. How idiotic is that? European Union, think about it, what, whatever you want is not exactly a third world country with poison babies strewning the streets. It is a highly uh, uh, efficient and sophisticated economy with their own FDA. And their own FDA said that baby formula that was on sale on the Europe, in the European Union was perfectly safe. But you cannot import it into the United States because that would upset the apple cart of the monopolists who are already providing it here. So that brings up the great uh, phrase by Milton Friedman is that libertarians and classical liberals uh, are not in favor of corporations. We are in favor of the free market. We are in favor of competition. We don't defend corporations. We defend the competition between them. It is through competition that you get, uh, that you get more and that you get a better price and better quality. All right. So we've made the case you want to help the poor. You want to embrace free markets. You want to get to super abundance. You got to embrace free markets. You want to help families, babies, so people can get houses and achieve their dreams. You got to support free markets. But when it comes to the environment, a free market can lead to super abundance, but will eventually lead to overproduction, total pollution, and will destroy the environment. If I care about the environment, and even though I'm okay with the superabundance, why should I embrace the Cato Institute human progress view of the world if the environment is my highest priority? Because the countries with the best environment in the world are the richest countries in the world. And that's not a statistic produced by the Cato Institute. It's produced by every uh, conceivable international agency or renowned university. When you look at the Yale um, Environmental Protection Index, it's the richest countries which are at the top. And that makes sense, because if you live in a very poor country, what you care about is your, the survival of you and your family and your tribe. And you don't care whether dinner has to come by slaughtering some sort of a uh, endangered animal. What you need to do is to find food. So every time we have an economic collapse, like we had in Zimbabwe or in a uh, in Venezuela, um, you know, in Zimbabwe, the first thing the people did when they had a hyperinflation of 96 trillion percent was to start slaughtering the animals in, uh, in, in the wild, wild animals, giraffes and uh, elephants and zebras and things like that. When the people of Venezuela, uh, following their socialist experiment, socialism in the 21st century, um, when they ran out of money and food, they started slaughtering the animals in the zoo. Um, it's, it's richest countries which can protect environment. It's the richest countries which can produce so much food on a small acreage that they can lop off a part of their country and declare it a national park where animals can, can roam freely. 
Um, if you don't have a highly efficient agriculture like we do in the West, you have to utilize every acre of land to, to farm corn or wheat or barley or whatever. Um, uh, if, you have, if, if you have a very rich country with very high incomes per capita, people are much more likely to part with a little bit of their income in higher taxes in order to support um, environmental protection, um, maybe slightly higher energy um, because you need specific filters in order to prevent soot from rising from burning of fossil fuels and things like that. Um, but, uh, but, uh, but, 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 but implementing those policies costs money and there has to be a balance between what's feasible and what's not. And when countries go over their skis, so to speak, and start implementing policies for which the country is not ready and its technology is not ready, then you end up in a place like Britain or Germany where, um, they, 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 they are facing months of stratospheric energy prices and perhaps even energy rationing because because what they've opted for was was beyond what the market could carry so Excellent. so so the point is that so the point is that unless you are a misanthrope unless you believe that the world would be a better place without human beings if you believe like i do that we should have a clean cleaner planet but that the welfare of human beings must be at the, in the middle uh, of, of our thought that, that the welfare of human beings is primary, then it's always a question of striking the balance between, um, between making people's lives better and protecting the environment. And we are doing it generally very well in Western countries. Um, but when we get the balance wrong, as we have done in the last couple of decades by pushing uh, un unproven technology uh, too far, then then we can then we can then we can make an error in the opposite direction, which is to say that that by thinking that we are protecting the environment, we we may actually destroy it. For example, uh, windmills uh, in general. You know, not a bad idea, but ultimately very bad for wildlife, very bad for birds, very bad for eagles. Um, costs a lot of money and a lot of CO2 to produce it. It's simply not a technology that is mature. It's not a technology that can be produced uh, without tremendous harm to the environment. A lot of earth, a lot of um, rare earth metals go into the production of windmills and uh, solar panels. And once you account for all the environmental damage that goes on by producing all of this so-called clean technology, you are actually probably doing more harm to the planet than good. Um, perhaps, perhaps, uh, uh, perhaps uh, natural gas uh, should be around for a little longer than 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 we would necessarily than, than the environmental than the environmentalists would necessarily like. The book is Super Abundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. Marion Tupi, thank you so much for your time, sir. My pleasure. Thank you very much uh, for hosting me and for taking an interest in our work. Thank you.